Hello and welcome to the Nomad Podcast. I'm your host, Nomad, and with me today is author and researcher Gary Wayne. Gary's extensive research has encompassed the Bible, Gnostic scriptures, the Quran, Gilgamesh, and other ancient epics, language etymology, secret society publications, and much more. Thanks for joining us today to share your knowledge, Gary. How are you and what have you been up to lately? Well, thank you for inviting me to guest on your podcast and uh, so happy to be here and hoping to you know discuss a few things with your audience that they may have uh, not thought about or want some more information on so uh yeah so i've been very very busy um i do probably more shows than my wife would like me to accept in a week um, but i try and fit everybody in and i'm also working on another book as well and then i've just uh, agreed to work with the uh, Nephilim Anthropology Project group out of London, um, working on um, bringing a Christian perspective to a lot of the New Agers and seculars and other people that are in there, and sort of look at what we can talk about in terms of a common history, uh, and maybe encourage people to have a closer look at the Bible at the same time, which is all, what I always try and do. And so between that and the second book that I've got coming out, which will be a, a prequel, not a prequel, a sequel to the Genesis 6 conspiracy and more targeted directly at Christians, as opposed to the first book where I'm trying to draw people in and give them a little bit more of a worldly view in terms of how to understand our history and the other belief systems and how they intersect. This one is designed more to Christians because uh, what I've heard from people over the last number of years uh, through contact on shows and social media is that they want more information what's in the Bible and they want to go deeper. So this is a deep dive on fallen angels, um, giants, mostly after the flood, because that's where we get most of the information on how that fits into prophecy. So it's going to be titled the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, I think. And the subtitle will be Prehistory and Prophecy and maybe another word in there for, we might throw Raphaim in there, which is a term that people I think need to become more familiar with. Yeah, I love that. And I would actually love to just start there if you don't mind. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about kind of the difference between Raphaim and the Nephilim? Yeah, I think it's such a important question. And that and in combination with the flood are two really, really important pieces if you're going to try and understand prehistory. And if you're trying to look at, okay, here's what the polytheist cultures are talking about. How does that match up? Because it gets kind of confusing in all the different sort of vernacular uh, lenses that are used in polytheism for their religions and their mythologies. But if you understand that there's a flood and that there are giants both before the flood and after the flood, and then start to add that into that when they're talking about gods as in their parent gods, let's say like a Kronos, that would be part of the parent gods uh, of the and Anu of the uh, Sumerian and on and on and on. They have offspring gods that people are a little bit more familiar with, like Zeus or Anki and Enlil and Osiris and Isis. Those are the offspring gods that tend to come to power after the flood. 
It's not that they killed those fallen angels um, or gods as, as they're understood in, in polytheism. It's that because they're immortal, they actually went to the abyss prison. And that's why they're able to rise up like an army, which host of heaven for angels, as it's described in the Bible. There's one for the fallen and one for the loyal angels. And that is defined as an army, which has rank and order. So you would just have one sort of succeed in whatever that hierarchical structure is. So when you understand that, then you look at the term Nephilim and Rephaim. And people have probably heard both, but more the Nephilim. What people don't understand is the Nephilim shows up only three times in the Bible as a Hebrew word. So it's translated as giant, but it only shows up in Genesis 6-4, the creation of the giants before the flood as it's translated in the King James Version Bible and in other English translations that might say Nephilim, uh, might say something else, but typically those are the two uh, terms. And, and the word giant there goes back to the Hebrew word Nephil, which is the singular form of Nephilim. I am is the male plural and it's defined as a tribe of giants. It can also mean bully, but specifically uh, understood as giants in the antediluvian concept. The two other times it shows up, is in Numbers 13.33. And for people who may not be familiar with that very famous chapter, this is the chapter where Moses sends the spies or the scouts, I prefer to call them scouts, <laughs> I have a Christian biases. <laughs> and so they send them into uh, the land of the covenant and throughout the land of Canaan. And this is the embellished report where it shows up by the terrified scouts, not the details that Caleb and Joshua do, you know, talk about first, but this is they what it what they have seen terrifies them because they see two kinds of peoples. They see the Anakim, also known as Anakites. I tend to call them Anakim. And they see people like the Amalekites, like the Canaanites, and several other tribes like the Amorites there that are taller than them but distinct from the Anakites or the Anakim. And in Deuteronomy 1, that's where we find out not only that they're stronger, but in the recap of the accurate details that were reported by Joshua and Caleb, Moses is retelling the story and distinguishing the ones who are taller, who are like the Amorites and the Amalekites, and uh, the Anakim kings that they see there. So in the embellished part of the report, you get, a report where the Anakim are the children of giants. And it says that twice in terms of giants in Numbers 13.33, and both time that word goes back to the Nephilim. But here's the key that people need to understand, and, and, and it's a really important detail, is that in Deuteronomy 2, you get a description of several different tribes, not all, of the Rephaim. And if people are looking for that word Raphaim, it's going to show up in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants, from the giant kings coming out of Mesopotamia to fight with the giant kings in the land of the covenant. And then in Genesis 15, where Abraham is being shown all the land from the Euphrates to the Nile River, it's going to be showing up with the mighty seven plus three other nations, but they're included in amongst the, uh, the mighty seven there as the Raphaim. The other three are what I call the KKK of, of ancient uh, times, and that was the Kadmonim, uh, the Kenim, and the um, Kenazim. And 
I would actually qualify those as the mighty 10 at that time, but they only show up as seven with a few changes um, and Raphaim being removed and being replaced by the by the Horim after that. But the point in Deuteronomy 2 is this, is, is that the Anakim are described as giants, but that's the word Raphaim. So it's accurately just describing them as giants, but different than the Nephilim, a different word. So they're not Nephilim, they're Raphaim. And so what they're trying to do in the report to scare people is to, to get them to imagine the antediluvian giants, which are huge not that the Raphaim aren't giants because they're very very large anywhere from you know with goliath 400 years later being 11 feet three inches using a royal cubit versus the common cubit but even if you use that it's nine nine um so huge and og would be somewhere between 12 and 14 feet tall so what we have going on here is a testifying of the veracity of the nephilim there as to these incredibly more powerful and larger giants before the flood with the post-diluvian or after the flood giants. And so they're trying to scare the Israelites even more. They should be rightfully scared. <laughs> and they haven't yet forged their faith yet to take on the giants and the hybrid giants. But um, these are not the Nephilim. So Raphaim shows up from the root word Rapha. I am being the male plural. Um, 25 times in the Old Testament after the flood. So many more times than uh, Nephilim. So the, the, the difference is, is that we don't get Rephaim before the flood scripturally. So my distinction is, is that these are giants that, are, that show up after the flood and starts to tell a story more accurate to the biblical understanding, although I'm open to both that, you know, maybe perhaps Rephaim were before the flood and they survived. And Nephilim didn't, but more likely because they're not as big by what, you know, as what is sort of being implied and inferred in Numbers 1333, they are a second creation of giants that show up after the flood. Now, we're not told specifically how giants show up after the flood, although you can make a very good case for a second incursion, which I tend to fall on. We don't have that sort of smoking gun verse to say, Yes, that's that's what happened as in Genesis 6, 4. Even though it says the sons of God go to the daughters of men again, that could mean just before the flood, or it could also be part of preparing the reader for that they're going to do the same thing again after the flood. And if that is done again after the flood, then that starts to make sense of having two names sort of show up for giants before and after the flood. Like you have Gilgamesh that shows up after the flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh and uh, being recreated. And he is two thirds God and one third human, just as Anakedon is. And this is part of the flood story of uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So he's not on the ark that Upnotishtun and all of his family of giants are, because they're two-thirds God and one-third human, because later on he goes for wisdom for the guy who survived the flood, right? So this is a different creation, and it's a second incursion there, as well as you get a survival story in, in polytheism as, as, as well. So I look at it as 
it's more likely that they were created after the flood. And then you get the offspring gods who would be like, as I mentioned earlier, Osiris and Isis as, as the Egyptian famous ones. And you have, you know, gods like Poseidon, which are famous for creating the giants after the flood for an Atlantean based story. And I think there's a conflating of stories there. And so I think what happens with these gods, like the Balim, that would be more familiar with, uh, with Christians from Mount Hermon, um, that they create these Raphaim just as it's recorded as such in the Ugaritic text, where the word Raphaim comes from, from the Rapiu, and actually trying to bring Baal back in their fertility rituals to create more giants in the Ugaritic text that they would have went to the abyss as well for the same crimes as their parent gods did. And so what happens is those gods move up and they also inherit a lot of the stories and the mythos around it because they're the new sort of reigning order of gods over the earth. Yeah, could I ask a question on that? So it sounds like you're saying that the Raphaim were potentially, it's, it's, we're theorizing a bit here, but created after the flood instead of surviving the flood? That's my favorite position. Uh, and... I'm open to surviving. I'm open to somehow on the ark some way as well, whether or not, um, however you want to get about it, there's different variations of survival uh, on the ark and then other ones that would be survival, um, you know, in polytheism as other arcs that were supplied by the fallen angels. But also you get versions of off the earth, in the earth. So I just sort of put it into three buckets, but I, I separate the ones on the ark because there's a lot of, of people out there that, that, that tend to fall into that. It's in the genes of the wives. That's where the giants come from. And I don't think that sort of stands up, uh, but I leave it open as a possibility with survival somehow, some way as, uh, uh, as the other option but my favorite one is, is that's because it makes more sense scripturally for me, um, is a second creation. So what does that look like to you? Is that, would that be like, um, some, somewhere down the line from Noah's family, we get people who are doing some genetic manipulation or something like that? No, I think it's, um, exactly as the same creation that, that is done before the flood. So that you get a Baal. Uh, and and Ashtaroth as mating with humans to create these um, demigods. And that ancient, that term demigod is the polytheist term that shows up in secular um, in, in the secular language as being a, a different meaning in ancient times as what's understood as today because they, they kind of sort of gloss over it. What it means is the offspring of a god or a goddess, and a human female or a human male. And so these were the demigods, the divine representatives of the gods, reigning as kings, ruling the religions and the priest class and the whole upper end of the society, both before and after the flood. Okay, so are you saying that, um, I'm still trying to understand how they're how these Raphaim or other entities were created after the flood. You're saying, um, by like spirits that were mingling with humans? Not, not, not as a spirit as we understand angels being spirits. And that wouldn't have happened before the flood either because how does spirit create 
offspring through some sort of sexual copulation with a physical being, right? That just sort of is one of those things that we need to take a deeper dive on as to what's going on here. So what we do know is this, is that, um, for example, in the Sodom story, um, and just before the angels go to Sodom, they show up with uh, the pre-Jesus, uh, the word uh, made, who later will become Jesus. Um, there's three of them there, and they're, in, they're taking a physical form. They're eating, they're drinking, they're touching. Um, and so what we do know is angels there and the ones that continue on to Sodom and other references we get about angels being able to do that is that they're going to take a physical body. And we need to understand that in the terms of what that means is, is if they're a spirit bearing to interact in the earth in, in a physical way, they want a physical body. So that means you need to create the DNA that would go with it, which would be the ability thereafter to procreate, and they would look like you, and they would have some of those powers, including that counterfeit spirit. Where we get that biblically to understand that, where that comes together, is the word habitation in Jude 1.6, where it's talking about the, the angels before the flood who were sent to the, the abyss prison, the pit, uh, for their crimes, and that's the crimes against the Holy Spirit and the crimes against creation for creating these demigod giants and passing on the counterfeit spirit, the evil spirit that we would understand, or the demon spirit. And those were immortal spirits, and that's why God ends that in Genesis 6-3, which limits life to 120 years, which is part of the creation story of the original Nephilim. So from the original creation, there's a degradation of any ones that would be created after that, and then again after the flood. But it's that word habitation that starts to give us an understanding of how this happens. So habitation is the Greek word oikotarian. And it shows up only one other place in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 for the house in heaven. And it means a dwelling place for the spirit. And so they left their dwelling place for the spirit in heaven. And they can come down to the earth and act as opalescent beings or spirit beings. But if they want to physically interact, they're going to need to have a dwelling place for that spirit. So in the New Testament, we're told about there's a makeup of three parts. And you can also include the mind, but that's kind of an extension of what happens. So you have the body, you have the soul, and you have the spirit. And it's the spirit that comes from heaven that meshes with the soul that only God and Jesus can separate, right? So it becomes one, but it needs that body and that soul to be the dwelling place for the spirit. And so by creating that oikotarian, they're able to create a physical body. This happens again from a super Christian perspective, if I can put it that way, with Jesus, where you have the Holy Spirit. It's going to create the oikotarian within Mary, without sex, which is the soul and the body that's going to be developed so the word can, can, can become flesh. So that Jesus can interact physically in the world as being part human, not just on that temporary sort of basis, but part human because it's a human soul and body that's been grown up uh, within the womb and then atone for uh, the sins of the world as the creator of the world at God's command, right? 
That's the word of God. Mm -hmm. And so if we understand that, then if you have a body, you can pass on that DNA and that's how the procreation happens. And then you create these demigod giants that originally have an immortal spirit. So you have an, you have an, a, a God that is a God of this world, not God of the spirit world in heaven. And so God eliminates the ability for that body to continue forever. And so when they die, their bodies don't go to sleep like humans. And again, if people, I mean, it says over and over and over and over in the Bible about uh, that we sleep. There's only a parable, which I won't go too far into the minutiae on this, that suggests that, you know, in Abraham's bosom. But it's a parable is a common myth or story of the time that's used for a moral point. Yep, it's the point that Jesus is talking about. If somebody comes back from the dead or several people, nobody would listen to them anyways, and they wouldn't change their ways. That's the moral of the story. But humans sleep. But the immortal counterfeit spirit, the damn spirit, isn't allowed to sleep and it's not allowed to go to heaven so it's either going to, it's going to go to two places it's going to wander or it's going to go to the abyss prison as ezekiel 32 and isaiah 14 talk about in the sides of the abyss for the terrible ones the the the, the worst of the nephilim and the raphaim and so these are the demon spirits that jesus encounters right that is he deals with them all of the time and he's and they're afraid that they're he, Jesus is going to send them to either the abyss or to the lake of fire before their time, particularly with the ones in, in Legion. So when it says evil spirit, understand evil as not saying demon there, but it's talking about these evil spirits. But where you see devils, that goes back to the Greek word dama, demon, as we transliterate it. Whereas when it's used for Satan, that's the Diablos word in Greek. So they're two different things that they're talking about. And of course, Satan is the prince of the demons and the angels. So they answer to him. So when you start to understand how the system works in terms of the physical world and that the world is corrupt, you understand why when fallen angels were living in this world in long periods of time, interacting with humans, that the world was corrupting them as well. By the temptations but they're the cause of of the evil okay so in my understanding then um on the theory of them being of the raphaim and the nephilim um particularly the raphaim being created after the flood so in your mind is that the spirits but becoming incarnate becoming physical beings and then replicating from there well, the giants would recreate afterwards, right. right? Either between themselves, one presumes that there's male and females, or with humans as well. So there's a certain amount that are going to be created from the angels with human females. So what happens after the flood with uh, that being um, the, the theory that I tend to go with is that uh, you have after Babel, you have spreading out of... Uh, the, the people and so as they spread out they're going to come in into contact with the the fallen angels um, and they're going to establish polytheism that sort of gets the seed planted at babel but they're going to be completely sort of submersed into polytheism for the most part afterwards this is why abraham is going to be created you know in a couple of 
couple hundred to 300 years later. And so when, when we have these fallen angels, and particularly when it comes to the polytheist accounts, they focus on Sodom and Gomorrah in terms of where the giants were created. So in a lot of the Gnostic texts, you're going to see that Gomorrah was the creation uh, bef before the flood. But after the flood, it's Sodom was where it starts, which starts to make sense of the Sodom and Gomorrah story a little bit more for right. people in terms of a little larger context. So it's the angels that are producing with males and females um, because we get accounts, at least in polytheism, of goddesses also creating with human males. So, but a classic example of us understanding this after the flood might be, you know, Hercules, who's the son of Zeus, right? Um, and he's and he's a hero and a titan, and he's classified as a giant um, in in Greek mythology. So he would be a post-diluvian giant. And then there's a, her, uh, a I'm going to pronounce it a little bit differently, a Hercules, which is often conflated with Hercules, but there's a Heracles god and a Heracles named giant before the flood. Just as like Gilgamesh, it shows up as that giant before the flood um, in books like the Book of Giants, Enoch Book of Giants, for example. That's where it's most famous for. And then there's a couple other locations that sort of extend off of that book, separate from the account that's the Epic of Gilgamesh that has him showing up after the flood and as he shows up in the Sumerian genealogies of the kings as the son of Lugalbanda after the flood, king of Uruk. And of course, he was 11 cubits tall and that would make him 19 feet tall as a king and seven feet wide at four cubits wide. Okay, cool. So, and we do, it does seem like we have a lot of good evidence um, I mean, there's physical evidence of, you know, skulls with elongated, elongated skulls and things like that. Do you think that that is related to these entities? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have uh, two sets of elongated skulls. One is, is what humans did as a binding to the babies right. to create and emulate the demigods. And I'll come back to the demigods in a minute. But these are smaller skulls the thing that you can't do with binding is make them larger you can't create more volume in, in 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 the skull but the elongated skulls of the giants are significantly bigger and i believe and the suture is different too right there's no yeah there's no suture in the mm -hmm. uh, in the giant ones and so if you can imagine now in terms of why they would look that way in terms of what we talked about before in terms that they might look like the offspring as being offspring of their parents and that they would take a similar sort of look in this world. So you have the watchers, which show up in Daniel 4, and they're also used in the book of Enoch, is a classification of angels in that Saba, host of heaven. Saba is the Hebrew word for host. And you have four groups. You have archangels, which people are familiar with, like Michael and, and Gabrielle. You also have the cherubim which are the ones that pull, at least in the vision in Ezekiel, pull the chariot of God and they cover the throne. You have the seraphim, um, which work before the altar in Isaiah 6 as ministers before God. And they actually pull one of those 
pieces of coal off to take away the sin of Isaiah and put, puts it to the lips as a, as a minister would to take the sin away so that he's ready for this vision that he's going to be receiving. And then you have another group that Enoch talks about, which are the Ophanim. And those are the ones that uh, show up uh, also in Ezekiel 1 and 10 when it's talking about God's throne in the vision in earth, where you have these cherubim-like beings within the wheels, except there's one face that's different. And the wheel that's used there, um, and understand you can have wheel coming from a word called Gilgal, as in the Gilgal Raphaim for the wheel of the giants that's at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is a famous polytheist worship site and ritual site, and or Ophan, as it's used for these beings that are within the wheels, as it translates out of Hebrew, put on the I am plural, you got Ophanim that sort of, even though we don't have a full Hebrew manuscript of the book of Enoch, whether or not it's been corrupted or not down through the years through its translations into Giaz, which is the Ethiopian version, or into Aramaic, or into the Greek version, it, you can see that root of Hebrew words kind of showing up in Enoch, that it was based there at least at, at one time. And so these are the watchers. Now, at the top of that hierarchy are the seraphim. And they, as, and as they're depicted in Daniel, are overseeing the governance and the commands. These are the loyal ones from, from the throne of God. And they're also responsible uh, for the development of and, and the worshiping of God, just as they're the ministers before God. So now imagine seraphim as fallen ones, the Nephilim of the Shemaim. Uh, that's where uh, the Hebrew word nephil comes from is nephal, which means fallen, but the I am is the fallen ones the fallen angels of the Shamaim, Shama is heaven, and they're the heavenly ones and the fallen ones. And these are the, these are the fiery serpent ones known as the seraphim because they're described as seraph, which, um, and I am is the plural again, and they have a serpent face. So if we understand now what happens in polytheism around the world, we see serpentine gods and dragon gods all over the world. And these were six-winged angels. They were a fiery serpent-faced dragon, right? Because in, in antiquity, a serpent and a dragon were considered essentially the same. And you get a few different versions, like with Leviathan and Tiamat, when Tiamat is a uh, female parent god, along with um, a goddess, I should say, along with um, Anu in the uh, Sumerian pantheon. And they're more, more of the serpent beast of the sea type of sort of imagery that they get, but sort of in the same serpentine classification. But that's, it's the ones that are uh, the six-winged fallen seraphim that I'm going to focus on. These are the sons of God that are talked about in Genesis 6-4. And we know they're angels because you get Job 1, 6, 2, 1, talking about the sons of God presenting themselves in heaven. Humans don't do that. Although people say it's uh, maybe that happened on earth with humans. We don't get scripture for that. And then we also know in, in, in Job 38, 4 to 7, you have the sons of God showing up with the morning stars at creation. Well, humans weren't there at creation. These are understood from an, an Old Testament perspective are the sons of God. They're not Sethites, and they're not uh, adopted sons of God after the resurrection for Christians. 
right? That's something that happens in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we look at the seraphim as being the watchers, they're one of the watchers, and they're the sons of God that um, are depicted in Enoch as being the watchers who mate with the human females. So now imagine all the serpentine imagery around the world that goes along with the kings. Yeah, it's and everywhere. In yeah. almost every sort of big pyramid, there is depictions, or at least around that area, if not directly on the pyramids, of these serpentine beings. Yeah. Um, so, so the, and, and that the kings were described as serpents in early prehistory and shortly again after the flood. Right. And so you have these gods who are producing offspring in the physical world that will look like them. So if you can imagine dragon creator gods in China, the Nagas in India, the feathered or plumed serpents like... Uh, Quetzalcoatl. And... Yeah, all of the Central and South American um, and Modern. on and on around the world. Um, you all of a sudden get an answer to what they might have looked like in terms of that serpentine look. And they bring it back. I know that was a long answer with these with these elongated skulls, right? You get that serpentine look. You get these huge round eyes that sort of wrap around and they're said to have glowed. They're called the shining ones in, um, in polytheism. And that's because their eyes were thought to be able to light up um, you know, a room. Just as in the book of Enoch, when Noah is born, they're afraid he's the son of the giants because he's glowing, right? Yeah, he has like white hair, right? Yeah. And he's glowing, yeah. Yeah. And you have these very high cheekbones that they also had. And then these long, this long protruding chin. And you get this serpentine look. If you want to see what that looks like in a diluted manner in terms of the bloodlines and the in the intermarriage that they would have had to have done over the time to get new blood in to prevent de- diseases like hemophiliac disease, Habsburg jaw, which is a more common one of too much close intermarriage. And that you also combine that with accounts outside the Bible that they had fertility issues to reproduce, that they would have to bring in human bloodlines and DNA to mix. And so you start to dilute that size and look over time. But if you want to get a glimpse of what somebody might have looked like, is I would, if I'm the audience, Google um, Akhenaten. He's the father of Tutankhamun, or King Tut, as he's commonly known as. And if you go to one of the museums that tours around, look at that statue. It is a serpentine face. This is the general look of what they were. And so they also tended to have longer necks, just as the Anakim are known as, as you take that back to Hebrew, or it means long neck. Just as Og, who's the last of the Raphaim, the last of the giants that are created after the flood, or the ones that were created before the flood, depending on how you want to interpret that. Uh, his name also means long neck as well. So I had this long neck. And as we talked about with Gilgamesh, he was extremely wide, seven feet wide, right? There's this two-to-one ratio in terms of height to width that is sort of brought to us in terms of the size of Og's bed to demonstrate. And it's it's kept in Rabbah so that people would know that these weren't giants. These were just weren't, you know, 
taller ones, the Shazu that they are also known by the by the Egyptians, the taller ones that we talked about earlier. The so that bed was nine cubits long and four cubits wide. So that's going to be he and he was a king. And Josephus says that's measured on 21 inches. And so that would make that bed almost 16 feet long and seven feet wide. So he's going to be a little bit less wide. Uh, so he's probably going to be four or five feet wide. He's going to be, you know, 12 to 14 or 15 feet tall. And it's that, that, that two to one ratio. So they were extremely wide. And you see that word coming up in the Bible as stout, which goes back to the, and, and have a few other words that will link back. Stout not as in fat. Stout is in wide and is in strong. The word as, which is that root word for as, as and azazel, which will come out of that the EL being the angel part or the God part of the, the name, just as in Michael or Gabrielle. Mm -hmm. So these were monstrously tall, wide, built like WWF wrestlers um, or NFL linemen, and they were fleet of foot and very dexterous. These were the ultimate warriors. And the average height of the human would have been five to five and a half feet at that, at that time. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was a lot of great information. What was the name of the person you said that would show these characteristics well? Akhenaten, in terms of the face. Akhenaten, okay. Yeah. If you Google, Google you know, King Tut, his name is going to show up because that's the father. He was part of the Armana dynasty, which is the other name um, mm -hmm. that's associated with that series of dynastic kings. But he's the one that really shows that serpentine look and the elongated skull to boot. How do you think then the Raphaim relate to the serpentine beings? Are they one and the same, do you think? Are you familiar with the verse in Job, Job 26, 5, where it talks about the Raphaim are formed beneath the waters, also their inhabitants? Yeah, that's, that's another great passage. And as you're talking about Job, um, for anybody who's double-checking me on the word giant as it comes out into English, there is w one time in Job where giant shows up, but it doesn't go back to Raphaim or to uh, Nephilim. It goes back to Gibberim, which is the mighty ones where that goes back to. that The, the, Neph the Nephilim were Gibberim. Now, Gibberim doesn't always mean giant. It can mean you know, a human, it can be God's strength. It can mean a lot. It's used 158 times in the Old Testament and not always for a giant. Yeah, giant was <laughs> mostly used as mighty ones, if yes. I understand correctly. Well, I no, mighty a... ones is, is gibbering, right? But it can that, mean a giant, like the, the but it doesn't word? always mean a giant. Okay. The root word, yeah, the root word is gibur. Uh, and then yep. the I am is the plural. You can also get might used, uh, and it's used, oh... I think over 40 times as gibberah. And that's the, the A-H is the female portion of it. So it's used for the word might as well. Yeah, that's the word I was looking at is gibberah or gibor. Um, yeah, well, gibor it... is, is the root for the gibberim, but one's male and one's female in the gibberah. Yeah, it says that word was used as mighty 63 times and mighty man 68 times. At least where I'm looking at, I'm just yeah, looking at that, in the yeah. blue letter Bible. Yeah, you won't find that that really stands up in, in the application that it's used that, that many times for giants. And you have to be careful because David's mighty men, that word mighty goes back to Gibor for the Gibberim. And most of those are Israelites. They're not giants. Mm -hmm. There are a few like perhaps 
uh, Uriah the Hittite and a couple other ones that might have been mercenaries that were in there. But so you want to be careful on, on, and that's one of the things I try and get um, sort of people to understand is, is when you're translating and looking up the meanings of the word in Hebrew and Greek, I think is really good to do, but understand that it can have several different meanings and it's got to fit the right application for the narrative. So just because you see mighty one doesn't mean it's always pointing to a giant. Because again, no, right, Gibor yeah. can mean is also used for God's strength or even the word yeah, Excel, right? For sure. I was looking up the other way. So I looked up giant and then yep. there's several different words for giant. And then some of them mean mighty one. Some of them mean, you know, uh, giant specifically. And then there's lots of other versions like you were saying. So we were talking about Raphaim in, in Job, I think chapter 26 is what you're referring to. So mm -hmm. there are three words. There's actually a couple more that come out that um, we won't really get into too deep on the minutiae. So you have a root word 7495, which is Rafa, which is the singular form. And that means to heal. Um, medicine, a physician can mean sort of terms like that. And it's an interesting word because it's the root word for uh, Rafa as in giant that I'll get to in, in a second. But it's also thought that these giants had some sort of self-healing capability, whether it was a technology, let's say like a sarcophagus or something that some people speculate on, or they just had the natural ability to self-heal, which is why you would want to take their head suddenly and quickly, um, as David does with uh, Goliath, and we get some other examples in, in, in the Bible as well. And in the Ugaritic text, it says about the Raphaim, the Raphaim is that, that was the way they did not want to die because of what would happen in the underworld to them. And we already talked mm. about the demon spirits. So, um, so 74.95 produces 74.97, which is the Raphaim, which is the term for a tribe of giants and giants. But there's 74.96 as well. And that's the word that goes back to uh, Job 20 uh, in, in, in Job chapter 26. And that means spirit or damon. So again, all of those are associated with the greater meaning of the word giant, but they're specific to uh, an aspect of them. And so typically you'll see that also translated as in other, in, in, in other uh, translations as Raphaim, not only as a spirit, but of the dead, right? And so we want to be sort of careful in terms of how we understand that. But there's a connection here to the giants and what happens when they die, because you get this word that shows up in Ezekiel 39 called the passengers. And in some translations, it's English translations, it's the travelers. And this is used in an end time battle in the Gog War, and where mighty will show up, there's these mighty ones that show up, which is Gibberim again, um, in, in the end time. But these passengers show up, and that is the Hebrew word abar, which means to cross over, like to cross over from another dimension through a portal. Um, and it can have a whole bunch of other meanings, but typically it's understood as the passengers that, that cross over. And the Raphaim had the ability to go through portals between the underworld, which is we would understand as Sheol or Hades, 
um, where the abyss is located and be able to go back and forth after they die. Where they didn't want to be was in the abyss prison in the underworld. Um, but the underworld was a significant part of their rituals in terms of how the dead would pass over and be protected and find their way to the place that they're going in the underworld. Okay. Yeah, I, I've heard that, that verse, Job 26, 5, also referring to departed spirits. Yes. So do you think maybe that's kind of in this context what it's talking about? Is yes. The, okay, because after that it says, Naked is Sheol over against him, and there is no covering to destruction. So we're thinking that in this passage it's probably talking about the departed spirits. Yes. Okay, cool. Thank you for clearing that up. That's super helpful. So, yeah, this has been really great. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I did want to get into. Let me see here my notes. Do you Have you heard of Tartaria? And do you know if there's, have you found any sort of relationship maybe between the Nephilim and, or the Raphaim and Tartaria? Yeah, it's a show in itself, but there's, there's a lot. Maybe a that, teaser for another episode. Yeah, so... So Tartarus um, is another word that Tartarus, you know, that um, Tartaria will sort of be an offshoot word. So Tartarus mm -hmm. is the is is the root word, and Tartarus is the means abyss, um, and it's translated once in the in the Greek end as Tartarus, that is translated as hell in in, in the in the New Testament, and I don't like the word how they use the word hell in the old and the new Testament, because it conflates three different locations, the lake of fire, the underworld and the abyss. And, and that's why it's important to understand it in, in its original meaning. And so this is also known in polytheism as the abyss prison that the giants who rebelled were sent to. And in polytheism, these giants escape out of Tartarus after the flood. And Tartarus is also known as a god of the underworld in Greek mythology as well. So when you're understanding Tartaria, understand that this is a reference that has meaning before the flood and it has meaning after the flood. So again, it's important to understand in the context of what somebody might be talking about is what is the date that they're talking about in terms of its angeology and is that before or after the flood? So Typically, it's the giants in polytheism that escape out of the abyss after the flood, which is their story and how these giants show up after the flood versus a second incursion. And they escape out of a place in Scythia. Um, and they are the root peoples after the flood for the Aryans and the Tartars and and several other names understand there's about four different classifications of indo-aryans after the flood so they're also known as the tuatha de danan both before and after the flood and that's the you know the tribe of danan as or diane as 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 one version for the mother goddess but there's another version it's the tribe of danu which is that parent god of of uh, sumeria who also created giants before the flood. And so the Tuatha de Danan are part of the intermix in the in this Tartarian peoples. And these are the people that are going to migrate to Ireland as the Tuatha de Danan, the fair folk, the fairy folk, up the Danube River in the blonde-haired uh, and 
blue-eyed versions as as they go up into uh, Sweden and Germany and Russia. And but there's also a dark-haired version too uh, that people like Gilgamesh looked like, right? Or um, <clears throat> the Hittites. They seem to have intermarried with them. They have that same sort of look. So there's red-haired ones and hazel-eyed ones there's blonde-haired ones blue-eyed ones and there's dark-haired ones with big bushy beards and they all have pale skin just as horim as one of the Rephaim peoples after the flood that word goes back into its various meanings as into white as in white bread and in, in with its related words and things like that they were thought to have very very pale skin uh, that's where the name fair skin come from and they were thought to be good looking so when you hear the term fair that's where that whole term in terms of the fair princess or and even when you see it in the king james version bible where it says fair it mean it's meaning beauty right and it's all going into that meaning so you have an expansive empire of tartaria uh, where these four different types of peoples are going to branch out to and so typically tartaria represents in the modern kind of mythos as i would put it as this eastern empire right so you have aryans that are going to migrate down into persia you're going to have aryans that are related to those ones in persia that are going to form, form the Achaemenian kings the uh, part of the beast empires um, also they migrate into the indus valley they also migrate in a different wave of them. They go into the Ukraine as the Tartars and the Cossacks, and then will extend to create um, an extended empire into Moscow and set up there. So the Kievan uh, czars um, are going to eventually set up uh, in, in Moscow. And then you have the Mongols, which also extend out of that after the flood and the Mongol empire. And they seem to be part of these beast empires um, who start creating these huge empires after the flood that the beast empires of Daniel 7 will extend out of. So we get Babylon at that sort of juncture in time as being set as part of those beast empires. But there are two other ones that are before that, as Revelation 17 talks about seven of them. Um, and you can get that uh, through Assyria and through Egypt. My understanding of why I select those is that all of the beast empires are intricately connected to Israel throughout their history. So Egypt is where Israel grew up with the 70 sons of Jacob to become a nation, right? Syria is the first nation to take the northern tribes into exile. So they're going to be intricately part of Israel in the end time, even though we only visibly see the southern kingdom today in, in Judah. But so understand that it's important to understand these things about Tartaria, but let's not get before the flood and after the flood confused because the technology before the flood was significantly higher and the ability to build the buildings that they built before the flood and other things we're just now starting to catch up to. Yeah, so do you think then that the, a lot of the grand architecture that we see of these pyramids and so forth were created by the fallen angels or by the creations of the fallen angels, I guess? There's two different versions of that. There's a um, the old, old cities, uh, let's say that the Sumerians said that they inherited, uh, were built by fallen angels. But after the creation of humans and then after the creation of the giants, Polytheism tends to break down 
a rebuilding of monuments and things as you're leading up in into the flood so there's two different age groups of uh, of these cities so a classic example of one that might be a little bit older might be jericho because it's got a, from a secular dating uh, a very long sort of history but you have things like the pyramids that are being built that are older than the standard egyptian chronology but uh, aren't as old as let's say jericho although some people might dispute it, that they, they would be a similar age. According to the Freemasons, um, and in their ancient history, and understand their history starts before the flood, and they sort of dovetail into um, a lot of things that the Bible talks about, and they accept that into their belief system, but not, not everything, right? So they take their beginnings back to seven sciences that were created by Enoch, son of Cain. Understand there's two Enochs, one son of Cain, one son of Jared. And so I call one the evil Enoch and one the ecclesiastical Enoch. And Enoch, son of Cain, according to the Gnostics and Freemasons and secret societies, say that God taught Adam a lot of knowledge in Eden. And that makes sense to me because he's... He, he's running all by himself and then later he gets help with e but even that full employment let's say there's only two of them there's four huge rivers running through this this garden of eden and there are orchards in there there are crops being grown everywhere there are all sorts of animals and things like to operate this type of garden they're going to need knowledge from god and god obviously teaches them god but and I'm not going to go into the good and evil aspect of it because that's a different rabbit trail of how that knowledge is used. But this knowledge is going to be passed on after they're ostracized from Eden to Cain and to Seth and to Abel. Abel is killed, but Cain is going to use that knowledge for evil and he's going to teach that to his son Enoch, who's going to separate it into the seven sacred sciences that we know as the seven liberal arts today. And that's going to merge with the knowledge from the fallen angels and to create mystical religions that I call Enochian mysticism that's going to cross the flood. It'd be part of that same organizational structure that, that crosses the flood. And out of the development of that knowledge, you get the development of the mystery schools, which is the beginning of the secret societies, which is why the Freemasons and ancient Masonry, which is technically a little bit different than Freemasonry, because Freemasonry is very low on the hierarchy. Masonry is very high in terms of the royal bloodlines. And so this knowledge is developed before the flood that is going to have them help them build these monuments so they accredit the secret societies the gnostics actually credit the knowledge developed by enoch son of cain is the knowledge that was used to build the pyramids okay. so from that from that aspect you start to the and they're built as sort of monuments to the greatness of that civilization understanding that from a polytheist lens because sodom and gomorrah were thought of as cities of light and cities of knowledge to the polytheists as well so understand how they they, they would perceive that so yeah that would be um you know how i would look at that development of the knowledge and that you've got these these buildings that were built not necessarily by all of by the gods but certainly by 
the descendants of Cain, and then when the Nephilim are created, maybe even with their help. But they need that knowledge to build them as well. Okay. Yeah, that was a good summary. Thank you for going over that. Um, do you think you touched a bit on the garden? Do you think there were other entities here while Adam and Eve were being created? Have you heard that before? Yeah, and, and I think that, that, that makes some sense because, you know, we get a kind of a hint of what's going on here with this serpent creature, which is the Hebrew word Nahash or Nakash as we transliterate it. Right. And, and this is a walking, talking, intelligent, serpentine being that's going to deceive Eve. And I know a lot of people say, well, no, that's Satan that's doing it. Well, Satan isn't the one who loses his legs isn't the one that uses, loses his arms, doesn't lose his speech, doesn't lose his intelligence. So it's not Satan that does it. He may be coaching this, this Nakash serpent, or he may avatar, be the avatar, and the serpent is the avatara, just as he does that with Judas. When Judas needs help to betray Jesus, he enters into Judas to do that. So we know biblically, that fallen angels can do that. So I don't think that's allegorical. I think that's actual fact. But he could have entered in to help the serpent or he could have coached. I don't know which. But what I do know is, is that uh, in Ezekiel 28, he's described as being in Eden. So he's involved, but he's not the one who actually does the actual deception. So that's our first indication of other beings. So when we look now at the six days of creation, you have people being created on day six. And then you have Adam and Eve being created sometime after day seven, which a lot of people will try and I think, you know, because we're taught this to take back to, well, that's the same creation as the people in day six. Well, a couple of things sort of come to mind on this is that it's a completely different creation story. The details don't match. You know, they're created in multiple, male and female. They're told to spread around the world. They can eat anything that they want. Right? And with Adam, he's created first. Edom is created sometime later. So he's created in singular and then another one. And then offspring happens after Eden. The sequence of details that are listed are different that, than are told in the account in, in the day six, and they may be recreating uh, non-corrupted animals at that point, which seems more likely if there's two different creations, because I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. So, right. and I've got a, a document on this, and, and a lot of the topics I've talked about, if people want to get a hold of me, get a hold of me through my website, the genesis6conspiracy.com, number6conspiracy.com, and ask for the difference between day six and Eden, or how do you know they're the sons of God? Just ask by topic. If I've got a document, I'll send it to you. I don't charge for any of that. Um, and ask me any question that you want. I'll, it might take me a while to get back to you, but I will get back to you on it. So you get this seemingly two different creations that are going on. And then when you look at the New Testament account um, in where it says that a day is like a thousand years in the book of Peter. And you say, okay, that makes sense. A day is like a thousand years to God. Does that then mean 
days one through six is like 6,000 years of creation. And then there's a thousand years for um, the Sabbath. And then there's a creation of Adam and Eve somewhere downstream. And we're not told how, how long. We're not told day eight or anything like that. So there could be a gap in there as well. So you start to extend that. So if you've got a longer period there, and if you go to the idea that not only did Nephilim show up or giants show up after the flood, the Raphaim, as I like to view it, there might have been other things that showed up as well, either being recreated or survived the flood. And in polytheism, we get incredible accounts of all these different beings they created before the flood. So it would make sense to me that the offspring gods who would have taken over after the flood would have done the same thing their parent gods did. And of course they went to the abyss for doing that as well. So I think there are, there possibly were other beings that, that were in there looking at the differences and that I don't believe that the Bible contradicts itself. And then it starts to answer the story where does Adam, not Adam, but where does Cain get his wife from? Because Seth is born when Adam is 130 years old, and I won't go through all the details, but it seems that Cain is going to be ostracized somewhere between 20 and 40 years old because they're just starting to do the offerings to God. And that's when and his offering is, is rejected, right? He's not doing the first fruit sort of aspects that he's supposed to do. And so if Adam is 130 years old and... We don't know, again, how long Adam is in, in, in Eden, but it doesn't sound like it's all that long, right? So let's put another 20 or 30 or 40 years. You have a gap that's in there. So where does this individual come from that he marries? And he's got, they're going to build a city for the people there. Where do the people come from? Who is Cain afraid of? It starts to make sense if you have three or four races that are created on day six, and that Adam, who receives a spirit for a special commission, and that's when you get um, the Lord God word show up, uh, that you have um, Yahweh, which is seemingly the word of God as it's sort of intermixing in, in that relationship that is going to create as the first Adam, um, the being that's going to resolve the angelic rebellion it starts to make some sense that there's that there's two different sort of creations there and there's a different commission that's going on and a spirit is put in that is distinct or different than what was created with the people on day six. Anyways, I have a complete uh, document on this and I have a chart that just sort of itemizes all of the difference if people want to get a hold of me on it. Okay, that's awesome. Thanks for going over that as well. So do you think, could you elaborate a bit on who you think Satan is then? Do we have, because it's, he's different than Lucifer, right? Lucifer fell with the angels and brought them and worked with Satan? Well, I a lot of people sort of look at that point of view. When I look at Isaiah fourteen twelve, and I look at, it says, Lucifer, son of the morning, that Hebrew is Halel Ben Shakar, Halel son of the morning. You have an El name on there. That seems to be a specific name. And Lucifer, it is an Italian word that is related to the planet Venus in, in Italian that is inserted into an English language for a Hebrew word. 
and it makes no sense. Lucifer is also the god of the Freemasons in Gnosticism, one of the titles that they call him. What we do know is, is this, so, and I think it's Halal is one of his names, and I think he has multiple names and multiple titles. And so I think what is being told here is the fall of Halal, and who does Jesus say Satan is? He's the one in Luke 10, um, where he's talking about he saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He's equating that to being the same, just as the same being is the one that falls in Ezekiel 28. Now, we have to be careful in some of these prophecies that what I like to call dual prophecies because you have prehistory that's mixed in in terms of the angelic rebellion that's going on at Isaiah 14 and what's going on in prehistory in Ezekiel 28. And I won't go through all of the dual prophecies. And you have some allegories in there that are sort of beast kings of the time, like the king of Babylon and the Assyrian in Isaiah 14. And you have an allegorical word that comes out of it that's not used anywhere in the Bible, but as in the definitions of Hellel, there's another word, H-E-L-E-L, -E -L, which is figuratively the king of Babylon, but it's not the same word. But we don't get that Hebrew word used anywhere in the Bible, but we get the king of Babylon. You get that king of the time, of the prophet for the prophecies and then you also get a reference to what happens in the end time and they're all doing the same thing so satan tried to raise his throne to be like god in heaven in the angelic rebellion you have all of the beast kings of prophecy trying to do that you had nimrod trying to do that at babel which is the root word for babylon um and you have um in the end time antichrist and daniel 8 trying to do that as well, just as he's with Satan and the dragon um, in Revelation 12 in the time of, uh, of Judah escaping to the wilderness. And he's received the power from the dragon in Revelation 13. So understand that this these dual prophecies, you have to understand the prehistory, also understand it's prophecy for that time, and it has end time implications. And that's why some of the details don't always match up with the time of the prophets. So with, let's say, Nebuchadnezzar or, you know, Shalman Ezer and, and the Assyrian kings that would have been associated with the exile of the northern tribes of Israel, right? Some of the details don't quite fit because it's talking about also the end times. So they're called dual prophecies in, in my understanding of that. And so if we know that, then we can look at the king of Tyrus in that same sort of allegorical prophetic allegory that's used and it's used consistently on in in other passages you know jeremiah 51 is another one where you're going to see that and there but anyways i won't go through all of them um but you have the tyrus who is this this babylon type king tyrus is obviously a phoenician king and he's like a phoenician economic powerhouse but yet he's not the one who you know, walked amongst the fiery stones in heaven. But we have this cherubim that walks amongst the fiery stones in heaven. Also talked about. So understand it's talking about prehistory. It's talking about Tyrus of that time who's going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar because this is in the time of Ezekiel. And it's going to have end time sort of influences. And you have this economic nature to the king of Babylon or the Babylon organization in the end time as part of the, the meeting. But again, that's another rabbit hole. So this cherubim, as I talked about earlier, is Satan. But a cherubim doesn't walk 
amongst the fiery stones. That's the seraphim. Satan is more than any other angel. He's the greatest create, creation of God in the angelic order, right? Uh, and so he has many sort of forms. We don't know how many titles or names that he has. In the book of Enoch, you have Gadriel, that's named as, which means wall of God, which is in the Garden of Eden. Well, okay, that doesn't say Hail El and it doesn't say Satan. So is that another title? It just says he has different sort of forms. He is also not only Diablos in Revelation 12 and 20, but he's also a dragon and a serpent, which means he's a seraphim angel in part. And he's also described in other aspects in the New Testament as an archangel. So he's has these sort of different dimensions of these watcher angels that, that we're talking about, because I think he's greater than those other beings. And he also has nine jewels on his vest plate. Right. So that's another indication, just as the Levites have 12 stones as being a, a, a minister. So I think in his seraphim role, he was the high priest before God, before he rebelled. So we don't know exactly how many, and I won't go through, I, there's actually more to it, but you get sort of the understanding that he's this, he, you know, he's, he's, he has these traits of these other angels, as I think, to, to demonstrate sort of his greatness. And I think that the resolution to the angelic rebellion and Jesus being, before he's being born, as the word is creating Adam to be the resolution to the angelic history that's going to create the nation of Israel to produce the Messiah so that he can become um, in the body to, to atone for the sins and then come back again. He is going to, as he's talked about in the book of Hebrews, he is going to be the new high priest as part of that resolution that Satan was also the high priest. So we know for sure, I think he, well, not for sure, but my understanding is, is that Satan would be a high priest. He'd be a archangel. He'd be a cherubim and he'd be a seraphim. And he's described that way. And if you understand that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, it just gives you more information. If you're prepared to receive it, then it starts to make some sense. Okay, so it sounds like uh, the way you see it is that Satan was sort of a fallen angel or a fallen creation of God, uh, kind yes. of like Lucifer, but still probably no. separate. No, or... Lucifer is Lucifer's a myth, in my okay. opinion. Um, and and when they're talking about uh, generally Lucifer being a separate being, they're talking about a different Nephilim creature. If I'm following the same line of thought, that's Hell L H E L E L, figurative for Antichrist figurative for the king of Babylon. And so when when people talk about Lucifer as being a, a Nephilim or a Rephaim type character, only in that figurative sense, like Antichrist is a Satan wannabe. He's a demigod wannabe. But Satan is the one that's described as Hail El Ben Shakar. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah. And then so... I guess, do we have a specific timeline on when the angels supposedly fell or is it possible or does it sound like they fell maybe around the same time of the same of the Genesis story when like was yeah. the was them falling directly correlated with the serpent in the garden? Well, that's the standard dogma and I get that and 
But certainly by the time that Satan is involved with the serpent to deceive, that rebellion has passed. So it either happened sometime, you know, after day six, day seven, possible. And, and, and I'm open to that as a good possibility that that's when the rebellion took place. But for me, it fits better before that even. But I'm not sort of doctrinal on it. I'm, I'm good either way. And so when you look at what is, is, is the language that's being used in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, and you get this word that's used as and, that's usually as a pause, like something happened before, and that you understand when it says the earth was for, uh, voidless or uh, formless and, or void and formless, um, that that word was can be translated two different different ways depending on the meaning that can become was as is or became okay yeah because i've read that too and was curious <clears throat> i i use the yLT version the young literal translation yep. and the way it's describing it makes it sound like there was already something here that was it was void it was you know yeah it became void. the waters okay yeah and if you look at the words tuhu and boohoo as they're used there, then you get, I mean, it means ruin, destruction. And, and God isn't likely going to create something that's a ruin, right? He's going to create something as it's talked about in Isaiah 45, as I, I recall the chapter, um, for people to live in. And he's not going to create in vain. And that's the, the Tuhu word again. And so you have... He's not going to create something to, that's destroyed because he wants it to have people to, to live in. And so if we look at, you know, and kind of overlay Psalm 104, you have an angelic creation that happens that's shown in the beginning. It's kind of a, a recounting of creation, but it gives you some interesting sort of information. And then you have later on in Psalms 104, you have uh, when God sends the spirit, the earth is renewed. Well, what happens in Genesis 2? He sends a spirit and you're going to have a renewal of the earth, right? And so I won't go through the complete sort of thing. I actually did a three-hour presentation at a True Legends conference detailing it out. And, I, and if you really want to um, see me lay it out, um, you'd have to order it through them. But they've still got those videos that are available. Or I have the documents I can send you because uh, I have documents on... Um, a possibility that 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 there's a what I call a renewal of the earth or the gap theory. And so when we start to consider that the earth was renewed and that this is a renewal of the earth that was destroyed uh, down to its foundations. Uh, an earth, as in the book of Peter talked about, that was just that was in water and out of the water and was destroyed by fire. And this was the earth that perished. The earth didn't perish in the, in, in the flood. But if this destruction by fire destroyed it down to its pillars, then you would have to have a renewal of the earth. And a lot of people will say, yeah, it all makes a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, you're talking about in terms of the pillars and the fire and the gap and everything. But then you've got Exodus 20 that says the earth was created in six days along with the heavens, right? Well, heaven has three different meanings. 
that's the word shama and heavens plural shamaim and so it can mean the uh, realm of god in the spiritual realm where god dwells as heaven it can mean what's inside the firmament and it can also mean what's outside the firmament in other words the rest of the universe so when it's talking about the heavens being created in six days in in exodus 20 it's it it's likely talking about um the firmament because the firmament is this is actually defined in the six days of creation as being heaven right mm -hmm. so i think that's what it's sort of talking about but it's a very long and I, i'm just trying to give some summary of the details as to how you get there but once you put them in a sort of a complete chain starts to make a whole lot of sense and that might be a better place for the angelic rebellion and that if there was a world before that they might have had creatures on there before although i'm fine with this being in that other gap that we talked about like the dinosaurs because the dinosaurs are these serpentine type of beings that many of them had feathers and they're giant creatures and one wonders whether or not after the angelic rebellion that they had created a completely corrupted form of earth with these other giant creatures before that and then they're doing the same thing again after the recreation yeah i think that makes a lot of sense and i definitely encourage everyone to you know pray about it and read your Bible and come up to your own conclusions. But that definitely helps fill in a lot of the questions and gaps that I had in my mind. So thank you for that. Um, this has been great. This has covered pretty much everything that I wanted to go over. Is there anything you want to leave the people with before we end? Um, yeah, you know, there's, when we start talking about these things, um, what i'd like people to sort of think about this has not nothing to do with trying to shake your faith this is about trying to increase your faith and i tend to call myself a christian contrarian uh, and my definition of that is is that i like to verify everything for myself i just don't take the word of what somebody says or what somebody says something might say i want to verify it myself and i would encourage people to to do that and sort of be like what paul ran up against called the bereans he used to verify everything he was preaching and i think we need to do that i don't think that our churches today are teaching us enough about prehistory and prophecy and I also think you need to understand prehistory to understand the full context of prophecy but our churches aren't teaching this and if we are in the fig tree generation then we're going to be and are very ill prepared for what's coming and i yeah. think we need to i think we need to dig deeper and we need to communicate these things without fear of ridicule but in a logical way and be able to back it up yeah that's good and i agree i think that doing you know don't take anyone's word for it seek the truth and know that you know seek and you shall find that's I, i've found that to be true in my life and i think that um, that's what we need to do in these times so that we can have discernment and be able to articulate the reason we believe what we believe yeah and 
we need to be respectful of all Christians views. Yeah. Um, and we need to be able to debate these things and understand that nobody's ever going to believe 100% with what somebody else believes, but there's that sort of common ground that we can find that directionally will help us because if these are the times that I think that we're in, in the fig tree generation, then that we need to understand that even the elect will be deceived as Jesus warns us about. Yeah. I mean, look at the Pharisees, even in the Bible, right? Like they thought they knew everything. They, you know, they knew the scriptures back and forth, but that's a classic they example. The, they missed the whole yeah. point. Yeah. <laughs> they missed the whole point because it wasn't quite how they wanted it to be. They had right. preconceived conclusions taught for generations as to how this was going to play out with the coming of the Messiah. And they didn't look at all of the, the prophecies. They only looked at the ones that supported their preconceived views. And that's one of the disciplines I try to do in all of my research, and particularly with prophecy, is, is do not leave out inconvenient passages. Everything has to fit. And then, and I know there's a lot of prophecies, but here's the thing. You don't have to fear all of that. You may have not included it all, but if you start to get directionally, I think, in the right direction, then it's going to fit. And here's why. One of the other things that I try and do, and I know a lot of people disagree with this, but I tend to put all prophecy around what Jesus said and not vice versa. And I do not apologize for what Jesus said. And he gave us a chronology, and when you put everything around that all the conflicts go away and a lot of people might say well i've been told that that isn't a chronological order that is just sort of a topical order well that's not quite how it reads out of the greek out of the greek you get this word then and when that's the greek word tote and it's not inserted it's not one of the inserted words it's the actual word and it means thereafter when this happens at that time and so when he's using that he's giving you a chronological set of events because then this happens and when that you see this and then that happens and then he even gives you at the midpoint the abomination of the last seven years that are talked about in Daniel 9 27 and the other prophecies he's, he's guiding you to in terms of Daniel, this is the time that Daniel was talking about. So you need to understand there's two halves. And then some people will say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is the, uh, is the, is the restrainer, possibly. It could be Michael, too, possibly. Uh, I lean a little bit more towards Michael, but it's, it doesn't really matter to me. And they say that the Holy Spirit won't be here you know, after the rapture. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to get into a debate on when you think about the rapture is, is but here's the thing is, is that we get a tribulation that happens in the first three and a half years, as it's described in Matthew and Mark. And Matthew will give you the, uh, the detail of the word affliction. And that's the word Philippians, which is the word that is used later on in Matthew and in Mark for tribulation. And it should be translated as tribulation. And in Mark and Luke, you get the Holy Spirit that's going to be coming to testify through the people. And in that chronology of order, then, that is between the start of the last seven years and the midpoint. 
where that testimony is going to happen. And then all of a sudden it starts to make sense of where that tribulation comes from of the saints in Revelation 7, who are part of the first fruits, the ones in Revelation 6 are told to wait for. Right. And you have to sort of when you put everything in place, you have to say, well, you have to fit into the wrath. Well, you have to know when the wrath happens and it's different from the tribulation and that there's a resurrection sequence. Right. And you have to put that in. And if you understand that, you know, that's Christ, the first fruits. And then when he comes, those are still who, who are asleep and those who are still there. And then there's Ezekiel 37 to fit in after that. And then there's the resurrection of those who don't take the mark of the beast, right? So because they're going to rule in Revelation 20. So there's a sequence of the first um, resurrection. And when you understand that, you have the last of the first fruits that are taken in the time of that tribulation. And in Revelation 14, where you have 144,000, we're not told that they're martyred, but they're seen in heaven. And they're called first fruits. And the ones in Revelation 6 are the ones that are resurrected first as part of the first fruits. Um, I think there's there's probably uh, a resurrection of others a little bit before that, like with the 12 elders that we see, uh, and maybe a few more um, after Christ was resurrected, of course, sometime after that. But what you have is, is a situation where they're told to wait for those who are going to be martyred like they were for the testimony of Jesus, right? So we have to include, that's just a small, sort of a small example of if you put things around what Jesus said, you get the chronology right. And so if you understand that, then you understand why you get a summary of the last three and a half years after the 144,000 are taken into heaven, along with the two witnesses who were commissioning for probably the first three and a half years, because that's how long their commission is for. And that's why people are fleeing to the wilderness in Revelation 12 for three and a half years for the last half. That's the people of Judea. And everything just sort of comes together and it fits. And yeah. don't, so don't so don't apologize for what Jesus said and put everything around what Jesus said and everything starts to make sense. That's my advice. Yeah, I agree with that, too. Um, even if you're just looking at it from a spiritual sense, if you're just trying to improve your life, I think that if you live by Jesus's example and his teachings, your life is going to be changed yeah. dramatically, even if you don't believe you know, he is the is God or whatever, you know, like you could have those semantics debates. But if you just look at Jesus's life, who would live totally different than anyone else, um, he speaks a lot of truth and a lot of things that have helped me personally, just, you know, changing the way you treat people, praying for your enemies, that's revolutionary. And it's yep. so um, anti what we want to do innately. And but it will totally give you complete peace when you learn how to do that. Yeah. And I would also, you know, would advise you not to be allowed, allow yourself to be pushed into these standard dogma formats that they might call you, you know, preterist or, or whatever. Don't assemble prophecy the way it has been presented to us and fit it in as you go. Do not have a preconceived conclusion. Yeah, look for information, not confirmation. Yep. And when they leave out passages or leave out parts of the Testament, be, be skeptical. Because, yeah. I mean, and again, I, 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 want, I want to respect everybody's point of view on this, but 
but my approach is, is you can't ignore the inconvenient passages. So if people think that the first three and a half years have already come and the abomination has already come or all the events just before that, you know, I have to look at what it says in, you know, Daniel 9, where you have the word N showing up in Daniel 9.26, which take that back to Hebrew, it's the end time. That's what it means. And then you have this seven years that are carved out. You match that up with Daniel 11, and this is from an Old Testament view that most of this argument will come from. If you get go into Daniel 11, you get a significant period of a, and, and, and a set of events before Antichrist sets up the abomination. From about 11:29 on, you have to take into those accounts that those events are going to happen, and then you have mm -hmm. to fit that in with everything else. You just can't ignore that and say the abomination has already happened and the first three and a half years have already happened. Well, so so based off of your uh, study and your, your, I mean your knowledge and language etymology, would you say that we are? If you had to like, I know you say you shouldn't like be in a label or whatever, but would you yeah. say we are more pre-trib, pre-tribulation? Uh, I, I, I tend to lean, um, if you're talking about rapture, to after the midpoint. Okay. Uh, before the wrath. Okay, got it. Before, before the year of the Lord's favor, which is going to include the Exodus. So somewhere after the destruction of Babylon that we're told to come out of in, in Revelation 18, uh, after Antichrist comes to power. And so, again, if you start just to put everything sort of together, it starts to make some sense. Um, and we know Babylon is destroyed just after Antichrist comes to power in Revelation 17, when the 10 kings hand their power over to the beast, then they destroy Babylon. And then he sets up his own religion, as Daniel 11 talks about, um, a god of fortresses that he's going to honor. And uh, <clears throat> he is uh, going to uh, locate that his new religious center, not where Babylon City was located. And again, Babylon has many components, and it said, to be a city nine times in the book of Revelation. So we know it's a city as well as a religion, as well as a, a geopolitical organization, and as well as an economic trading sort of organization. Um, so we need to understand it all that sort of way. But we also understand that um, after Babylon is destroyed, a new religious center with a new religion with the mark of the beast is going to be established in what's figuratively called Sodom and Gomorrah, which is Jerusalem, right? Um, and because he's going to have done the abomination and, uh, and trample the, the temple for three and a half years and the people there for three and a half years. So again, everything just slides into place and you can just sort of make it fit like a glove. And, you know, and another interesting thing is in what's going to happen in the first three and a half years is, is that the gospel has to be preached to the world. Well, that's done not only by, you know, faithful Christians, but we're also told there's 144,000 that's going to be out there preaching, part of the first fruits, probably to awaken Israel as well, lost tribes of Israel that are going to be called by name so that Jesus can break them out of those prisons in the year of the Lord's favor, and he can lead them, as the book of Micah talks about, as their king and their lord in the second exodus, which happens after the rapture, in my understanding of the chronology. Um, but you have, I think I, I kind of lost myself. Oh, you have the preaching of the gospel I was talking about. I got down another rabbit trail. So, um, 
you have a preaching of the gospel that is the 144,000, plus you also have the two witnesses that are killed after three and a half years as part of that preaching of the gospel. And then there's one other one that is in that time just before the summary of the last three and a half years in Revelation 14, where you have the 144,000 shown in heaven. That's an angel that's going to preach the gospel. And all of that is the first three and a half years. It's, it's events that we just can't ignore. Okay, but you're saying that those first three and a half years haven't happened yet? I'm saying they haven't happened yet. Okay, great, cool. Awesome. Yeah, we. I feel like we'd have to, I'd love to have you on again sometime, maybe go over that whole, that's a whole another yeah. subject in and of itself, but that yeah. was a great teaser and sort of synapses. Yeah, and, and just to sort of finish off uh, for uh, kind of where I fit is, is that I don't believe the seals have been opened. I don't think the trumpets have blown. Uh, I do think we're in the fig tree generation, but we don't know how long that generation is. So we're in the time, if we are in the fig tree generation, in the beginning of the sorrows. And there's four catastrophe, catastrophe events that will get stronger as they go, just as the uh, trumpets and the bowls and the wrath bowls, they all get stronger. They're separate judgments. They're not the same. 25%, 33% would be 100% that Jesus steps in beforehand. And so we're just starting to see those come and work together and get stronger as they go right now. Rumors of war, pestilence, famine, and uh, earthquakes. So look for more of that to continue. And we haven't seen the universal religion rise up yet. We haven't seen the 10 King Empire rise up yet. That's all gonna be formulating as these contrived catastrophes, human created catastrophes, um, continue to get stronger as we move towards the opening of the seals. Yeah. And I would just encourage everyone not to take this of like, Oh, be scared, be weary, you know, but be excited that, you know, we're, we're entering in a time and it, it's a, there's a passage in the Bible where it talks about, um, the blows and wounds cleanse away evil. And I think that that's what this does. If you allow it is to, any trials that we may face will help our spirit grow if you're looking for that growth and if you're looking to God. So if, yes. if we do start encountering things that seem scary on the surface level, remind, rem remember that there's more than just our physical bodies here. So, Excellent. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Gary. This has been so fun. Um, I love talking with you. You have a lot of knowledge. The way you stream everything together is really impressive and inspiring. Um, would you please leave the people, just remind them again where they can find your work. Um, I know your book, Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I'm working on that now and really enjoying it. So I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, but yeah, we remind them where to find you. Yes. The best way to get a hold of me is through my website at the Genesis 6 Conspiracy.com. That's the number 6 Conspiracy.com. On that website, there's a contact the author. So if you would like a document in terms of what I was talking about today, um many parts of it and or want to ask me a question or just want to make a comment get a hold of me there it might take me a couple of weeks to get back to you but i will get back to you on the website there's also a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters it's a big book um, it's a book you can't speed read um, because there's so much information in it but the chapters are mini stories and they're short chapters so that you can read it as you can digest it because it it's loaded with information from chapter one right through to the epilogue. So there's a generous excerpt so you can 
see whether or not that might be a book that's interested for you for you or you can get a signed copy from uh, clicking on buy now and buy a signed copy or you can link over from that same area um, under buy now to amazon.com or amazon.ca or to uh, barnesandnoble.com and if you're listening overseas i also have an overseas page for shipping as well the book is available on uh, most online bookstores and if you did want to support your local bookstore uh, which I encourage. It's distributed uh, through Bookmasters and they can order it in from there if it's not on the shelf. Awesome. Thanks again, Gary. This has been great. Thank you everyone for listening and watching and we will see you in the next one. Spirit straight before the clouds are parted. Thank you.